welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is February 18, 2024, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to welcome in discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. This is the third session of our extended series on Plato's Laws, and having completed our first two meetings on Book 10, today we're turning to the beginning with Book 1. I'll be taking on a different role today by joining the participants, while Michael Fitzpatrick moderates the discussion. I'm grateful to Michael for organizing today's session and the notes for it. Michael is a Plato scholar, a university instructor, and a doctoral candidate in philosophy at Stanford University. He's taught university courses in both philosophy and literature at a number of institutions, and also studies philosophers in Europe from 1600 to 1800, as well as contemporary Platonists, such as Alfred North Whitehead and Alain Badiou. So before I turn the microphone over to Michael, just a reminder as always that to contribute your thoughts to the discussion, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. And for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. So that everyone has a chance to speak, Michael will call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. Once we finish recording in two hours, we invite anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So, now over to you, Michael. I'm looking forward to joining in the discussion. Thanks, everyone, and uh, thanks, James, for the opportunity to help lead us in uh, the opening book of Plato's Laws. Today's discussion of the laws will focus on selections from Book 1, Section 624a through 644b. We will discuss other themes from Book 1 in our Part 2 discussion in two weeks. Since we're discussing the opening chapter of Plato's longest and last work, we should first situate this text within Plato's broader writing. The Laws is a work of political philosophy, one that develops ideas introduced elsewhere in the Gorgias, the Mino, the Statesman, and of course, Plato's most famous ethical political text, the Republic. The Laws is neither a regurgitation of those earlier dialogues, nor is it a repudiation. Instead, the Laws stands to the rest of the dialogues, much like application stands to classroom theory. A student studies a network of theoretical concepts and practices in a class, but after they graduate, they have to go out and apply what they have learned. Plato's dialogues form a pedagogical order, training young minds in the practice and lifestyle of philosophizing that they might have a harmonious soul that can be of service to their wider community. Now, it may be true in theory that this is what it looks like, but what does it look like in practice? Here, the laws stands unique in the Platonic canon, serving not as a dialogue for young students, but as a model for seasoned philosophers, older people who are ready to undertake the work of concrete politics so that their own societies might partake in the good as far as possible. The laws presupposes the principles and dialectical methods of all the preceding classroom dialogues, often summarizing lengthy discussion in short, punchy synopses. It also introduces a raft of new content, including a massive system of institutional checks and balances to distribute power and virtue efficiently throughout society, and one of the first and richest accounts of behavioral psychology, 
in which Plato gets down to brass tacks about how legislators and leaders of a society can actually move their citizens toward virtue. Socrates is no longer the lead interlocutor, much like the sophist and the statesman. It's almost as if the pedagogical role of Socrates has fallen away as he asked more questions than he offered answers. The unnamed Athenian takes over for the platonic voice, not to ask questions so much as to help us begin imagining what a truly virtuous society could look like, not just in the abstract, but in a real time and place. To that end, a major difference between the Republic and the laws lies in how the political norms get developed. In the Republic, Socrates and his friends were imagining various cities in speech as ideal models. In the literary context, they were sitting in someone's villa drinking cocktails with no immediate plans to commit to any kind of political action. By contrast, in the laws, Clinius reveals that he is a delegate who has been selected to help found an actual new city in Crete, a blank slate society in which he and his fellow delegates will be able to try almost anything. The subsequent discussion orients around what political principles and laws he should propose to the commission. The blueprint city is called Magnesia and is to be located in an unpopulated part of the island of Crete. As such, it is more ambitious than the ideal Callipolis of the Republic or the mythical Atlantis Plato imagines in the Critias. Another difference between the Republic and the laws pertains to their catalysts for conversation. In the Republic, an innocuous and friendly banter about justice turns into a major theoretical undertaking when justice is defamed by the boisterous Thrasymachus. Skepticism as to whether justice is worthwhile at all forces Socrates to formulate an elaborate defense of the just life. By contrast, in the laws, the catalyst for conversation concerns the teleology or aim of a society's laws and government institutions. What is a legislator seeking to achieve in the construction of a legal system? The identities of the three interlocutors become immediately relevant, as the Cretan Clinius and the Spartan Megillus both suggest that the aim of society is victory in war. The unnamed Athenian, Plato was from Athens, suggests a different aim for society, that of peace. He thus sets down in the early pages an absolute either-or, similar to the one between Socrates and Thrasymachus concerning whether a happy life results from justice or injustice. The Athenian says, quote, a legislator is a genuine lawgiver only if they design their legislation about war as a tool for peace rather than their legislation for peace as an instrument of war, end quote. In each case, we must choose which path to follow. Once peace is established as a superior telos or aim for a society, the Athenian elaborates that a peaceful society will achieve and preserve peace through its laws and leaders, working to make each member of the society as virtuous as possible. He rejects the more modern liberal democratic notion that there is no common good and people should be left free to pursue private interests. Instead, a good society educates and promotes a common good that excludes no one. 
Finally, Plato has his interlocutors make plain from the beginning that this dialogue will not be like the highly literary and dramatic Republic in which the young people get to press their questions and demand perfect models of virtue. The laws is for seasoned philosophers, elder statesmen who have long since mastered their desires and passions in accordance with reason, who can set up a just society without seeking any benefit for themselves or expecting that the society will be perfect in every respect. As long as Magnesia approximates the good as a second or third best city, these wizened legislators will have done enough. We turn now to our first theme of the discussion, listed on page two of your handout, which is displayed on the screen, in which war is countenanced as the basic political problem. I'll read our first excerpt, which is a brief summation by Clinius of the Cretan military industrial complex that shapes the core values. So excerpt one, this is a short paragraph by Clinius that comes at the very beginning of the dialogue. Well, sir, I think that these customs are quite easy for anyone to understand, at any rate in our case. You see, the Cretan terrain in general does not have the flatness of Thessaly. Hence, we usually train by running, whereas the Thessalians mostly use horses because our land is hilly and more suited to exercise by racing on foot. In this sort of country, we have to keep our armor light so that we can run without being weighed down, and bows and arrows seem appropriate because of their lightness. All these Cretan practices have been developed for fighting wars, and that's precisely the purpose I think the legislature intended them to serve when he instituted them. Likely enough, this is why he organized the common meals too. He observed that when men are on military service, they are all obligated by the pressure of events for their own protection to eat together throughout the campaign. In this, I think, he censured the stupidity of ordinary men who do not understand that they are all engaged in a never ending lifelong war against all other states. So, if you grant the necessity of eating together for self-protection in wartime and of appointing officers and men in turn to act as guards, the same thing should be done in peacetime too. The legislator's position would be that what most men call peace is really only a fiction, and that in cold fact all states are by nature fighting an undeclared war against every other state. If you see things in this light, you are pretty sure to find that the Cretan legislator established all these institutions of ours, both in the public sphere and the private, with an eye on war, and that this was the spirit in which he gave us his laws for us to keep up. He was convinced that if we don't come out on top in war, nothing that we possess or do in peacetime is of the slightest use because all the goods of the conquered fall into the possession of the victors. So I'll now open it up for uh, people to start weighing in on each passage as we discuss them. I will ask a kind of prompt question here in a moment, but I wanna emphasize that as we go through our discussion today, if you're somebody who hasn't gotten a chance to speak yet and I see your hand raised, um, I will try to move you to the head of the queue 
so that we can hear as many voices as possible in our discussion today. So my first prompt question to kind of get us started talking about Clinius's open comment is, what do we make of his summation of the Cretan belief that societies exist primarily for the purposes of preparing to wage and win wars, that peacetime is really just an opportunity to regroup and rearm before the next skirmish. And it might help us to think of his views as anticipating a modern realpolitik, uh, that is political realists today who see international relations primarily in terms of power struggle. So I'd ask the group, uh, what do people think are the merits of Clinius's position or what concerns do you have about his position? James, go ahead and start us off. And then other people, please raise your hand so we can start a queue. Well, thanks for reading this. And I think it's a, an interesting take on the kind of uncertainty that societies feel and the need for protection, uh, I guess, that addresses that kind of uncertainty. So I think, you know, maybe central to this is some sort of fear. And we try to develop rules that protect us from things that we should fear, whether it's enemies from without, or we'll see a little bit later on, um, they talk about civil war and enemies within. Um, so I think that's, it's a really interesting idea. And I think we'll see too the the idea that instead of promoting war, to promote peace and lack of fear requires the instilling of virtue in a society, which I think is very different from the types of constitutions that we have now, or at least the way that our constitutions have developed. So a really interesting uh, perspective on it. Wonderful. Thank you, James. Our next reading will dive in a little bit to the Athenians' response and the argument for peace. So I just want to let people know that that part of the discussion is coming. But right now, let's hear from Roger and then Phil on, again, you know, th there is a certain level of reasonableness almost to the way Clinius presents this. And we want to take that serious as a challenge to a world where maybe we are interested in building a peace. So Roger, what would you like to share? Well, perhaps the argument may be construed as one of the two uh, possibilities, either that Clinius is promoting outright war, that this is the nature of you know, our existence, that war is an inherent part of it and we need to wage it, or it could be like a little bit what James has alluded to, um, that sense of protection that human beings have. So in that sense that they would uh, they would be prepared for war, but not necessarily wage it. And I know I'm translating from French. There is a saying that says, if you want peace, prepare for war. And I see this of value even in society and uh, your interaction with people that you have to be on your guard and show that you, you can defend yourself and you have the means to defend yourself if 
if ever aggressed uh, physically or otherwise. So I, I see the argument uh, perhaps one of these two ways. Roger, that's such a wonderful comment. And I you really drew attention to what I was hoping people would see about the reasonableness in Clinius's position. You make a nice contrast here that we could almost summarize as there's two attitudes we could attribute to the Cretan ethos. One is what we might call an expansionist attitude, where we we want to go instigate wars and invade other countries. But you said uh, there's another side of this, which might be a self-defense attitude, which says we don't want to start wars. We don't want to invade other countries. But we do have a suspicion about whether or not other countries want to do that to us. And so if we want peace with those countries, we need to prepare for war to prevent other countries from initiating war with us. And I think you're right that it's not exactly clear which side of those Clinius would choose. But the second one seems like a more compelling skepticism that says, yeah, don't trust people too much. Be prepared to defend yourself if the time comes to it. So thank you very much for that comment. I hope that gives Clinius's perspective uh, a little more robust color for the group. Uh, Phil, jump in here. I see a, a different problem. I see the problem of any potential transition when something is so embedded in the structure of the state if the state is uh, sort of in a state of prepare war, even if it's defense, then in a sense, in some sense, the way it's stated, it almost seemed to say that the whole society is a standing army. And how do you transition into one that's going to be maybe at least part of it would not be a standing army, maybe an army in reserve, would become a problem because they're used to living together. So that essentially means that there's not going to be any sense of uh, true joy that you could experience because you're always in a state of uh, being ready and something else. So I'm anxious to see how you make that transition because the real problem is in this and making that transition from one to the other when it's so embedded. So by the way, I'm using the state in the pearl sense, the state of being and the state of a city. That's a wonderful ambiguity to the word state there, Phil. Uh, that's a very nice use. And yeah, I really like this idea you're highlighting that if you have a society that is sort of always waiting for the next war to come that creates a mindset for war an attitude where the the economy and the labor force and the expectations are all geared around war which is very anxiety induce, inducing you're just waiting for the bomb sirens to go off so to speak and what you're sort of asking is how would a society like that ever have the relief of saying we're finished with war and now we can move to another state of being where we focus on joy and community building and we're not living in this constant state of fear? 
So that's a really great question. And I think that's the direction the Athenian is going to go here shortly. Before I move to that passage, uh, any other comments here? Roger, I see you just raised your hand back up. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, having said what, what I said earlier, that you need to be prepared for war gets you in an efficient position. I just thought of Switzerland as a country who I know they have an army, but they really managed to kind of position themselves to kind of never be aggressed. I mean, never perhaps is not word, but over the recent past, at least whatever, 100 years or so, when everybody else was involved in war, they managed to kind of be on the neutral side. And in a sense, they didn't really need to be prepared for war. So maybe there is like a, a way, uh, maybe utopically speaking, where you can position yourself without really having to live in the kind of fear that perhaps Phil was alluding to and always uh, um, invest and to some extent waste your energy on, on war preparation. That's a great example, Roger. And I, I hold up Roger's focusing on real world examples as a good model we should follow, not just in this discussion, but throughout Plato's pod, looking at the laws. Because again, as I said in my introduction, this really is supposed to be a text that is setting forth a guide to how you could instantiate this in the real world. So maybe, I'm not saying it is the case, but maybe Switzerland could be an interesting case study as we think about the dialectic between Clinius and the Athenian on what a society should be aiming at. Um, so uh, we're gonna go to Phil, and then after Phil, I'll go ahead and read the next section because I think getting the Athenians dialectic on the table here will really open up this stage of the conversation. So Phil, go ahead and wrap up our last comment on the first passage here. Yeah, I like that comment about Switzerland because it really refers back to the text in this sense. In other words, this is moving from a state of total preparedness for war and allowing for a way for the transition already. And the relationship is really in the mountainous terrain. So there's a structure beneath the society because in the mountainous terrain, not only could you withdraw back to the mountains, create tunnels and prepare tunnels and all that kind of stuff. So you could fight a guerrilla war if, if necessary. And maybe people will realize, hey, man, this is going to be a tough country to invade. So, so if you could talk them into explaining to them the basic foundation of the terrain, then maybe that's the impetus to say, there's a way out of this total state of, of being. So thank you for uh, mentioning that connection, because that's definitely in the text itself. That's a wonderful observation. As you all probably noticed in the footnote that I put on this text below, I kind of described a little bit about the context for the dialogue here. And Crete is sort of known as, if anybody has ever been there, Crete is sort of known for being an island that has a lot of elevation changes throughout it, which make it tactically a very difficult 
place for a, a military invasion. So I like this idea that we could just appeal right to that terrain and say, you could be like a Switzerland. That's wonderful. Well, um, not only that, ahead. but it also has a, has a sea. So you have to beach land and you can't just run. Yeah, that, that's good too. Absolutely. So let me go ahead and go to our next section. I'm going to read the, um, this is the dialogue that follows sort of immediately after Clinius's statement. And it's a back and forth between the Athenian and, and Clinius over whether or not war makes sense as an end goal in the organization of a society. And as we go through this, I want you to sort of pay attention to the analogies that the Athenian draws between not just this question of war between nation states, but war in other forms, because I think it makes for a really interesting interplay. So I'll go ahead and read this, and then we can continue the cue as people build on our theme here today. Athenian, you certainly have had a splendid training, sir. It has, I think, enabled you to make a most penetrating analysis of Cretan institutions. But explain this point to me rather more precisely. The definition you gave of a well-run state seems to me to demand that its organization and administration be such as to ensure victory in war over other states, correct? Of course, and I think our companion supports my definition. So Megillus, the Spartan weighs in here, he says, my dear sir, what other answer could one possibly make if one is a Spartan? Athenian, but if this is the right criterion as between states, what about as between villages? Is the criterion different? Certainly not. Is it the same then? Yes. Well now, what about relations between the villages' separate households? And between individual and individual? Is the same true? Same is true. What of a man's relations with himself? Should he think of himself? As his own enemy, what is our answer now? Well done, my Athenian friend. I'd rather not call you Attic because I think it is better to call you after the goddess as you deserve. You have made the argument clear by expressing it in its most elementary form. Now you will find it that much easier to realize that the position we took up a moment ago is correct. Not only is everyone an enemy of everyone else in the public sphere, but each man fights a private war against himself. You do surprise me, my friend. What do you mean? This, sir, is where a man wins the first and best of victories over himself. Conversely, to fall a victim to oneself is the worst and most shocking thing that can be imagined. This way of speaking points to a war against ourselves within each one of us. Athenian, now let's reverse the argument. You hold that each one of us is either conqueror of or conquered by himself. Are we to say that the same holds good of household, village, and state, or not? You mean that they are individually either conquerors of or conquered by themselves? Yes. Clinius, this again is a good question to have asked. Your suggestion is most emphatically true, particularly in the case of states. Wherever the best people subdue their inferiors, the state is rightly said to be conqueror of itself, 
and we should be entirely justified in praising it for its victory. Where the opposite happens, we must give the opposite verdict. It would take too long a discussion to decide whether in fact there is a sense in which the worst element could be superior to the better, so let's leave that aside. For the moment, I understand your position to amount to this. Sometimes evil citizens will come together in large numbers and forcibly try to enslave the virtuous minority, although both sides are members of the same race and the same state. When they prevail, the state may properly be said to be inferior to itself and be an evil one. But when they are defeated, we may say it is superior to itself and it is a good state. Clinius, that's a paradoxical way of putting it, sir, but it is impossible to disagree. Athenian, but now wait a minute. Let's look at this point again. Suppose a father and mother had several sons. Should we be surprised if the majority of these brothers were unjust and the minority just? By no means. We could say that if the wicked brothers prevail, the whole household and family may be called inferior to itself and superior to itself if they are subdued. But it would be irrelevant to our purpose to labor the point. The reason why we're now examining the usage of the common man is not to pass judgment on whether he uses language properly or improperly, but to determine what is essentially right and wrong in a given law. Very true, sir. McGillis chimes in. I agree. It has been nicely put so far. Athenian. Let's look at the next point. These brothers I've just mentioned, they'd have a judge, I suppose. Of course. Which of these judges would be better? The one who put all the bad brothers to death and told the better ones to run their own lives? Or the one who put the virtuous brothers in command, but let the scoundrels go on living in willing obedience to them? And we can probably add a third and even better judge, the one who will take this single quarreling family in hand and reconcile its members without killing any of them. By laying down regulations to guide them in the future, he will be able to ensure that they remain on friendly terms with each other. Yes, this judge, the legislator, would be incomparably better. Athenian, but in framing these regulations, he would have his eye on the exact opposite of war. True enough. But what about the man who brings harmony to the state? In regulating its life, will he pay more attention to external war or internal? This civil war, as we call it, does break out on occasion and is the last thing a man would want to see in his own country. But if it did flare up, he would wish to have it over and done with as quickly as possible. He'll obviously pay more attention to the second kind. One side might be destroyed through the victory of the other, and then peace would follow the civil war. Or alternatively, peace and friendship might be the result of reconciliation. Now, which of these results would you prefer, supposing the city then had to turn its attention to a foreign enemy? Everybody would prefer the second situation to the first, so far as his own state was concerned. And wouldn't the legislature, legislator, have the same preference? He certainly would. Now, surely... Every legislature will enact his every law with the aim of achieving the greatest good? Of course. 
The greatest good, however, is neither war nor civil war. God forbid we should ever resort to either of them, but peace and goodwill among men. And so the victory of a state over itself, it seems, does not, after all, come into the category of ideals. It is just one of those things in which we've no choice. You might just as well suppose that the sick body, which has been purged by the doctor, was therefore in the pink of condition and disregard the body that never had any such need. Similarly, anyone who takes this sort of view of the happiness of a state, or even an individual, will never make a true statesman in the true sense, if, that is, he adopts foreign warfare as his first and only concern. He'll become a genuine lawgiver only if he designs his legislation about war as a tool for peace, rather than his legislation for peace as an instrument of war. So that concludes our second passage. Um, go ahead and start raising hands to get into the queue. And I just want to kind of frame this here a little bit uh, to get the conversation started. One way to think of the Athenians' response to the Cretan outlook is you could sort of think that the Cretans represent a kind of materialist view of the world, where the application of force between states or within a state between factions or even within a person between different parts of themselves is the primary mechanism by which the world turns. So it's force that moves and shapes things. And so a society aims at what it expects to happen, which is that it'll be forced in one direction or another, and you have to have a standing army to force back. By contrast, the Athenian argues for an idealist alternative that whatever the material realities might be, they are transcended by an ideal form that provides a vision for a better world that is different. And his ideal here, a lasting peace, it may not reflect the material situation that Cretans find themselves, but nonetheless, he argues it is what a society should aim at. So what do we make of the Athenians' argument for war being inferior to peace as the telos or aim of a society? And is it really possible for wars to become a temporary transition that bridges to a lasting peace, which is kind of what at the very end of this uh, selection, he's alluding to that war is a transitional state to a more permanent space, which is peace itself. Uh, James and then Phil. And like I said, we would love to hear from as many people as possible. So people who haven't had a chance to share yet, please do join in the queue. Uh, James. Thanks. I found this really uh, powerful section, particularly the part where Clinius says, this again is a good question to have asked. Your suggestion is most emphatically true, particularly in the sense of states. Wherever the better people subdue their inferiors, the state may rightly be said to be conqueror of itself and we should be entirely justified in praising it for its victory. Where the opposite happens, we must give the opposite verdict. And then the Athenian goes on to talk about evil citizens coming together in large numbers and forcibly trying to enslave the virtuous minority. I found that was so, I don't know, in many ways reflects what's going on today in many states in the world in this kind of 
battle for um battle i guess for the minds of people and instead of a statewide commitment to finding the good there's a commitment to this kind of ongoing battle between people as to who has the ascendancy and and whose views are correct and whose whose views should shape the laws of the day and it gives rise i think to this lack of continuity of goodness in a state uh, so goodness is maybe at one time defined by the majority in control as one thing, and then another group takes power and defines goodness differently. And I think really I like this idea that he's setting up here that there could be a generally agreed form of goodness that the the state can and, and its citizens can pursue. And he uses really, I think, the family motif um, and the idea of harmony and health, which I think is very um very helpful here. And that, that I think ties very much to the idea of peace. So I really like, I, I think there's some really powerful words here. Yeah. Thanks for that, James. Um, yeah. I do think uh, if other people want to chime in about specific conflicts today that we could apply some of these arguments to, I think that would be fruitful. You know, something that I was thinking about as you were talking, James, is when I think about the current conflict in Gaza, one of the things I'm really struck by is that both the Israeli Defense Force and the uh, Hamas militia are institutions organized much in the way Clinius was thinking, where they're always in a state of preparing for war, expecting the next uh, skirmish and so forth. And I think something the Athenian is sort of raising here is, can you set yourself on a path to peace when your principal institutions are always gearing for war? So that that's one context that I thought about. Some people might be thinking about Ukraine, Sudan, Myanmar. There are a lot of conflicts around the world going on right now. We should think about those as we're contemplating the Athenian's arguments here. Uh, Phil, please chime in here. Yeah, I, I really like the way the Athenian approached this, but I also find some problems in this sense that needs to be explained further. I like the way that he drove from the city, the many, the larger boat, down to the family, which is smaller, and then finally down to the individual in conflict with himself. And this really introduces uh, two problems to me. One is, okay, you could settle this through negotiation and the negotiation would be fairness because an ideal might be great in itself, but we still have a life that needs material substance. So at least on a minimal level, it has to be a fairness in the distribution that could sustain the spirit to a point that it could actually think good thought. So that's one problem you have to share. It's not that it's gone away. It, it, it is there. there. There is a fundamental grounding, just like the geography is a fundamental grounding. So that's one problem that we're certainly faced with, you know, like how do you divide the pie in what proportion and how to distribute it? Is it a total equality? Is it at least some degree of fairness that like <laughs> the the bottom of the ladder is not like homeless and you know don't have any food so so 
that's one problem. And that problem probably could be argued for in the negotiation to a certain degree, okay? If, if people are fair and minded in a sense. But it becomes a problem because it seems like this society might have a problem with that because that the mindset is in a state of war and conflict. But they do live in a group. So that may, at least on an individual basis, might not be as difficult, that part. The second problem is that when you drive it all the way down to the individual, then it becomes a psychological problem. I'm surprised at that because they don't have a language. I, there is a psyche, okay, and the spirit. Uh, and so in some sense, it sort of implies, particularly in this society, the psychological condition may be that they're all, if not the, how to say, uh, they're all sociologically neurotics. <laughs> so are you going to set up a society in which whoever's in charge is really, hey, you all need to go into therapy. <laughs> <laughs> because you got it all wrong, you know. Let's we need some talk therapy, or if not, uh, some drug therapy to get you to a state where you begin to recognize other things. Okay, so that's the second problem: is that yeah, is the state ready to provide psychotherapy? You know, <laughs> assuming they're not into uh, even something deeper than that. So. So that's the second problem. You have to explain that because they all need to, they need all at least need talk therapy to be able to even get to the negotiation table. That's it. Phil, Phil. Phil this is this is wonderful. I want to I want to re-summarize what you just said because um, for people who are you know just starting out with Plato's Pod and you're sort of wondering, do I want to continue in this long journey through the remainder of the laws. If you found Phil's comments interesting now, please stay with us because um, Plato could not agree with Phil more. So the first problem you raised, Phil, is um, it's one thing to sort of say a just judge comes along and reconciles competing family members or reconciles social factions or reconciles warring states. But what does that look like materially? That can't just be we all sing Kumbaya and John Lennon's Imagine. It's got to be something more to do with how we reduce the sources of friction in our social and material lives. And Plato absolutely agrees. And the discussion between these three interlocutors are going to go in that very direction where we're going to end up with things like um, a right to housing or things like the very specific treatments of how wealth gets distributed in a society. And then your second point is some people are just psychologically traumatized to the point that they can't be good faith actors. And I loved your comment. Sometimes it feels like we all need therapy. And it's for that very reason that one of the major themes of the laws going forward will be an in-depth study of behavioral psychology to talk about like how would you actually get people given their real flawed limited psychological situation how would you actually get them to a place where we have a genuine peace between citizens 
between factions between states. So I just that's not to answer any of your questions. It's just to say that Plato could not agree with you more. But I think what he's doing here is he's saying before we can do that work, we still have to figure out where are we trying to go? Where are we trying to get to? And here he he's having the Athenians say, well, in doing that work, we want to remember we're trying to get out of war, not prepare for the next war. Or to quote the Eisenhower excerpt that's on the first page of your handout, we're trying to aim at the abolition of war. Other thoughts or reactions people had to um, our current excerpt? James, go ahead and jump back in here. And then Roger. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, again, the idea of whether man is a measure of all things seems to be coming up in this dialogue. And in fact, the very first, you know, the opening line of book one is when the Athenian says, uh, you know, to whom do you give the credit for establishing your codes of law? Is it a god or a, or a man? And maybe part of this process of harmonizing and reconciling people when everybody has their own ideas is to acknowledge that maybe man is not the measure of all things. Uh, and if we all approach it with that sense, then maybe people will less be less invested in their personal positions and more invested in the idea of the collective good, which we heard in book 10, the collective good is also good for the individual. It's not that you're seeding any of your personal good. It's by promoting the collective good that you realize greater good for yourself as well. And I think that's the important thing that admitting that man is not the measure of all things would be very helpful with. Yeah, that's really helpful, James. Yeah, something people should really keep in mind as you're reading through the laws is what is the standard that each particular law or policy recommendation or teleology is being measured by. And I think James is really reminding us that the sort of central through line in Plato's works is he's daring to say um, the standard of, of justice or of goodness or of happiness um, is something more than just, did you get what you wanted? Because when it's all about what you want, and what I want is different than what my neighbor wants, that's how you end up in war. <laughs> and if the goal is to abolish war, we've got to find a different way of measuring goodness. And I think that's sort of what book one is preparing us to do. Um, Roger? Yeah, thanks. Perhaps that's a comment not directly on what we just uh, heard. Uh, I find the issue here, and perhaps Phil has alluded to individuals being mentally not healthy or sane enough to kind of understand and and absorb peace, it doesn't really take mental uh, derangement for people to support or promote war. I think greed is, is a central theme here that that's absent in this dialogue. And so because we have to look to see why there is war in the first place. Most of the time, it's because of man's greed. And man is greedy. I think of Hobbes, what he said, and it's, it's intrinsic. And if given the opportunity, everybody would be greedy. 
not only those who are actually benefiting from being greedy, like we think of those rich, whatever, 1% in the U.S. who kind of have 90% of the wealth, but even the other individuals who are being preyed on by the rich, if they were, if they're given the opportunity, they will probably act the same way, except that they're not able to. So when we look at wars, there is often a, a reason for the state to wage war, and most of it is to for materialistic reason. I mean, France would not send their army to, you know, the desert uh, south of Mauritania and Morocco and the Sahel and Chad for what? To help them? To help them restore peace? No, it's to sell arms. Same thing with the U.S. opening all those fronts in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. What did what did they benefit from? Uh, mainly is you know their own self and and productivity and and wealth so it's not to help the afghanis is not to restore order and peace to iraq in fact wherever they go it's <laughs> a mess ensues it's worse than it was before so i i don't know whether there is any possibility for peace really uh, as long as we are we behave like human beings so this is my take so perhaps again i'm not directly uh, kind of delving into what the dialogue per se but i find that it's, it's a side note that need to be said as to why wars are waged in the first place even between factions of society when we think of civil war um sorry i'm right. i'm going to end like in the us we now are kind of looking oh is is a civil war going to end to at some point perhaps between the rich and the poor so again thank you uh, i'll i'll stop here that's wonderful roger uh, like i said to phil's last comment these are exactly the right questions to be asking because they are the questions that the Athenians interlocutors are going to raise themselves in the chapters to come. Um, greed will be a major topic of discussion. Your comments, I thought, really nicely summarized Glaucon's famous argument in book two of the Republic, where he says, you know, we're all self-indulgent. And we need laws to just kind of, you know, avoid becoming tyrants over each other. But if we could get away with it, we'd all indulge our greed and our rapaciousness. So I think you're very much uh, alighting on concerns that Plato has. And again, you're pressing this need for a psychological realism. Can we reach these goals with humans as they are? And that's going to be a central problem that... Plato will wrestle with going forward. And I loved how you connected it as greed is a one of the causes of war. And there actually is a line, I don't remember where it is, but there is a line somewhere in the laws where Plato actually has the Athenians say that when you have wide disparities between the poor and the rich, it leads to civil war. So he's going to say that comment directly. Let me just ask one more question and then I'll... I'll get James to chime back in here. Just one last question before we leave this theme and move to our next big theme. 
which is, you know, on the front of this handout, I had an Eisenhower quote about abolishing war so that we can turn our attention to the abolition of poverty. And he gave that quote shortly after the creation of the United Nations. And he was really giving voice to this idea that the United Nations was created for the purpose of abolishing war. Um, 75, 80 years later, I don't think we've done very well. And so I think one of the things that I'd invite you to comment on or to think about is what can we learn from Plato in this book that uh, could help us try to actually achieve the teleology of something like the United Nations that was originally set forth for it and is clearly um, not happening. So James, go ahead and jump back in here. Thanks. I just actually wanted to pick up on what you just said in connection with what Roger said. I really like Roger's pointing out the problem of greed. And I think we'll see maybe in the rest of the dialogue how various offices and institutions are set up to help to regulate that. Um, but I think greed is a fundamentally a short a problem of short-sightedness in time, in that you know, you think you want the maximum benefit, but you're not thinking about the consequences that that has to other people. And um, I'm seeing in this whole project of Plato's, and, and I think in all of his work, in fact, is he really takes the long-term perspective. And so here he's thinking about setting harmony, which is going to be something that will operate for all of time rather than just for a specific time, right? So instead of these you know, various groups gaining power at different times and, you know, enacting laws that they see fit for that particular time. Here we have a, you know, proposal for a law based on harmony, based on virtue, which is going to endure for all of time. And I think that's an important thing. And, you know, you mentioned the United Nations. Well, that was, you know, 70 years ago, right? So, you know, a very different world back then. We were emerging from World War II, this terrible event happened and that was a solution for it. And I think we've now forgotten the circumstances that gave rise to that thinking. And we need to maybe reharmonize ourselves with the, with the course of time, I think is, is really something that's interesting here. And I, again, that theme of harmony, I think is so important. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and move us to our second theme for today, but Definitely keep raising your hands. I see Darren's hand up. So just keep raising hands. We'll get in the queue and then people can weigh in with comments on our previous theme and uh, we can start discussing our second one here as well. The second theme uh, that really comes up in this first chapter is this idea of what is a genuine legislator there to do. So when we think about when we send people to a parliament or to a Congress or some other legislature, what are they there to do? What is their purpose in writing laws, creating policies and so forth? And, you know, Plato famously throughout his political writings makes a rather provocative suggestion. And in this chapter in particular, he frames it in a way that I think really speaks to some of Phil and Roger's earlier comments about the relationship between material realities and the so-called divine good or divine reason. So 
really pay attention in this section to how Plato has the Athenians start to link those together. So I'm going to read our passage and then we'll uh, resume with the cue. Athenian, however, while not denying the courage of those soldiers, we still maintain that those who display conspicuous gallantry in total war are very much more courageous. We have a poet to bear witness to this, Theonus, a citizen of Megara in Sicily, who says, Serenus, find a man who you can trust in deadly feuding. He is worth his weight in silver and gold. Such a man, in our view, who fights in a tougher war is far superior to the other, to just about the same degree as the combination of justice, self-control, and good judgment, reinforced by courage, is superior to having courage alone. In civil war, a man will never prove sound and loyal unless he has every virtue. But in the war, Titaus mentioned that these hordes of mercenaries who are ready to dig their heels in and die fighting, most of whom apparently from a very small minority are reckless and insolent rogues and just about the most witless people you could find. Now, what conclusion does my argument lead to? What is the point I am trying to make clear in saying all this? Simply that in laying down his laws, every legislator who is of any use at all, and especially your legislator here in Crete, duly instructed by Zeus, will never have anything in view except the highest virtue. This means, in Theonis' terms, loyalty in a crisis. One might call it complete justice. The virtue that Titaus praised so highly is indeed a noble one and has been appropriately celebrated by the poet. But strictly speaking, in order of merit, it comes only forth. And that, sir, is to reduce our Cretan legislator to the status of a failure. No, 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 my dear fellow, it is not. The failure is entirely on our part. We were quite wrong to imagine that when Lycurgus and Minos established the institutions of Sparta and this country, the primary end they had in view was invariably warfare. But what ought we have said? Athenian, we had no particular axes to grind in our discussion, and I think we ought to have told the honest truth. We ought not to have said that the legislature laid down his rules with an eye on only a part of virtue and the most trivial part at that. We should have said that he aimed at virtue in its entirety, and that the various separate headings under which he tried to frame the laws of his time were quite different from those employed by modern legal draftsmen. Each of these invents any category he feels he wants and adds to it his code. For instance, one will come up with a category on inheritances and heiresses, another with assault, and others will suggest other categories ad infinitum. But we insist that the correct procedure for framing laws, which is followed by those who do the job properly, is precisely the one we have just embarked upon. I am delighted at the way you set about explaining your laws. You rightly started with virtue and explained that this was the aim of the laws the legislator laid down. However, you did say that he legislated entirely by reference to only one part of virtue, and the most inconsiderable part at that. 
Now there I thought you were wrong, hence all these additional remarks. So what is this distinction I could have wished to hear you draw out in your argument, shall I tell you? Certainly. And now in this section, the Athenian is, is sort of quoting what he wishes Clinius had said. Now, sir, you ought to have said, it is no accident that the laws of the Cretans have such a high reputation in the entire Greek world. They are sound laws and achieve the happiness of those who observe them by producing for them a great number of benefits. These benefits fall into two classes, human and divine. The former depend on the latter, and if a city receives the one sort, it wins the other two. The greater include the lesser. If not, it goes without both. Health heads the list of the lesser benefits, followed by beauty. Third comes strength for racing and other physical exercises. Wealth is fourth, not blind wealth, but the clear-sighted kind whose companion is good judgment. And good judgment itself is the leading divine benefit. Second comes the habitual self-control of a soul that uses reason. If you combine these two with courage, you get thirdly justice. Courage itself lies in fourth place. All these take a natural precedence over the others. And the lawgiver must, of course, rank them in the same order. Then he must inform the citizens that the other instructions they receive have these benefits in view. The human benefits have the divine in view. And all these, in turn, look towards reason, which is supreme. The citizens join in marriage. Then children, male and female, are born and reared. They pass through childhood and later life and finally reach old age. At every stage, the lawgiver should supervise his people and confer suitable marks of honor or disgrace. Whenever they associate with each other, he should observe their pains, pleasures, and desires, and watch for their passions and all their intensity. He must use the laws themselves as instruments for the proper distribution of praise and blame. Again, the citizens are angry or afraid. They suffer from emotional disturbances brought about by misfortune and recover from them only when life is going well. They have all the feelings that men usually experience in illness, war, poverty, or their opposites. In other words, as Roger said, we all need therapy. Back to the text here. In all these instances, the lawgiver's duty is to isolate and explain what is good and what is bad in the way each individual reacts. Next, the lawgiver must supervise the way the citizens acquire money and spend it. He must keep a sharp eye on the various methods they all employ to make and dissolve voluntarily or under duress their associations with one another, noting which methods are proper and which are not. Honor should be conferred upon those who comply with the laws and specified penalties imposed on the disobedient. When the lawgiver comes to the final stages of organizing the entire life of the state, he must decide what honor should be accorded the dead and how the manner of burial should be buried. His survey completed, the author of the legal code will appoint guardians, some of whom will have rational grounds for their actions, while others rely on merely true opinion. 
so that all these regulations may be welded into a rational whole, demonstrably inspired by considerations of justice and self-restraint, not of wealth and ambition. And that ends the quote of what he's attributing to what Clinius should have said. And then he just wraps up. That is the sort of explanation, gentlemen, that I should have liked you to give and still want now. An explanation of how all these conditions are met in the laws attributed to Zeus and the Pythian Apollo, which Minos and Lycurgus laid down. So I just want to say one thing, and then we'll have Darren start off the next stage of our discussion. In this last big section, he gives this list here. And if you noticed in my footnote, I kind of tried to spell it out in a little clearer way where I said, what he's saying here is that we have human goods, which are material goods. And those are organized hierarchically as the most important is health, followed by beauty, followed by strength followed by responsibly managed wealth. And then the divine goods are supposed to be the things you have to have in order to enjoy the material goods. And the divine goods are the four virtues of the soul, good judgment, moderation, justice, and courage. And so whatever comes first in the list is supposed to be the best. Whatever is last in the list is still important, but it's not as important as the preceding thing. So if you have courage without good judgment, that's not great. If you have wealth without your health, that's not great. If you have any material benefits without the goods of the soul, that's not great and so on. Okay. So we've gotten a picture painted here, not just of how to think about these things, but that a legislator is organizing society through laws and policies to achieve these things for the citizenry. So I'd love to hear people's reaction of just, you know, what would you think if we started running our parliaments or our legislatures in the modern world with these kinds of ends in view? Um, Darren, go ahead and start us off. I understand you may not have a comment directly on that, but um, go ahead and, and focus us on one of these topics, please. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, I raised my hand earlier regarding the previous discussion, but I can say a bit about this and then I'll go back to what I had in mind about the earlier discussion. So just in general, uh, this is my first time reading book one of the laws. I only read book 10 previously for the, our previous meetings. And um, I was very surprised at how good this is. It sort of belies its reputation as being like difficult and dry <laughs> and bone dry and legalistic it's not that at all this is like i don't know i i, I won't say peak plato because there's a lot of peaks but it's very this is very good so i was very pleasantly surprised it's so interesting um the, the structure is very complex it's not like a legalistic thing where it's like you know <laughs> it's like this hierarchical structure of like you know principles and it's very boring to read there's a lot of in interesting interaction between these uh, representatives of sparta athens and crete there's a lot of great stuff here. Um, and so just pertaining to what was um, you just brought up, I guess I love the structure of this dialogue so far. So now like the Athenian is going to try to segue the discussion so that it's on a more principled basis as pursuing ideals. Whereas before they initiated the discussion, Plinius thought that the institutions of a city were based on war like that's why they were formed 
And so there's there's another aspect that's interesting here, which is that Plinius and maybe even uh, what's his name again, <laughs> Megillus. I usually say it Megillus. Megillus, sorry, have a kind of self misunderstanding about their own societies because Plinius came right out and told us that the institutions of a society are built for war, and you know he can give a you know his elaborate version of that. But then we've arrived at this point where the Athenian is inviting us to restart. He says, we're going to restart the discussion, but we're going to discuss it in terms of we're going to reexamine everything through the lens of ideals. I mean, this itself is quite interesting because they're not just saying like what should happen. It's suggesting that we can have a kind of misapprehension about our own societies because they, they say, oh, our societies were found, founded by these great people of the past. You know, they were the ones who, you know, gave us the initially gave us the principles. So it's almost like we have a worse view of ourselves than maybe is the reality, because maybe there are ideals embedded in these and we're going to go back and revisit them. So I think just this dynamic might be worth just maybe, you know, paying attention to as we go forward. Anyway, sorry, that was long, but let me go. I, I actually wanted to comment on something before the question that Michael and others posed before about what maybe some of the practical implications of this discussion might be. Um, sorry, I was quiet for a while. I was getting my thoughts together. Actually, just like people were just pretty much just <laughs> saying what I wanted to say already. There's no point jumping in. But I'll just add this, which is that I think a major takeaway, at least for me, from this is that Plato sort of turning our, once again, like turning our eyes towards ideals and having ideals within discussions of politics. I think it's actually, I think it's very common in discussions of politics to just compare with other people, like who is worse and who is better. Um, and we see actually see this in many of the examples in this dialogue so far. So James mentioned before, like there's a lot here that seems to be about whether man is the measure of all things or whether there's sort of objective principles beyond just whatever our whims happened to be at the time. And then there's others have mentioned, like there's a kind of very materialist view of this materialist. Um, the example suggests like the, the other characters are maybe taking kind of materialist view. So this, this is why Clinias, the section that Michael brought up earlier about how, why Clinias thought that the Athenian talking about how, you know, when a good part of a city conquers the larger part of a city, which is not good then we consider that a good situation. And Clinias thinks that's a paradox. Well, that's a paradox because Clinias thinks like, it is It is kind of weird that when a minority, virtuous minority might manage to you know pacify an unvirtuous majority, like he's thinking in terms of numbers, right? That that would be a good thing because like a minority taking over a majority seems to be, you know, might not be a good thing if you just think in terms of numbers. But it is a good thing because there's something more than numbers in the world. There is ideals. So that was Cleanest paradox. So Cleanest is taking this, you know, materialist view. I forgot who, who brought that up. So another bit of vocabulary I want to bring, a platonic vocabulary I want to bring into the discussion and came out over and over again in the Statesman, which we read a year ago. But I think this is important. Is the very major distinction he draws in that dialogue between two kinds of measurement. So I think measurement is, again, another interesting thing that's going to come up later in this uh, book regarding um, the uses of drunkenness as a kind of measurement. But anyway, there's a distinction in measurement, though, which I haven't found explicit. Only read book one so far. I haven't found it to be explicit so far. But 
I think it's implicit and it is explicit in the statesman, which is between relative measurements and ideal measurement. Um, this played a very important role in the statesman. So relative measurement is when you just compare things to each other, to other objects, to other things. Whereas ideal measurement is when you compare um, the qualities of something versus some ideal. Like, I think there was even, I think one of the early examples in that dialogue was like basket weaving, like, or something. I don't remember exactly, but, you know, in any craft, in any technology, in any, you know, anything you're building, there's a comparison versus the ideal, the thing you want to achieve. You don't want to compare with all the other craft that other people have built. Like, you presumably have some ideal in mind. Like, what is the ideal, uh, the ship that goes fast and goes quickly and is good for war? You know, there's an ideal. It's not, you don't want to just compare with any existing ship that's around. So, right. yeah, sorry, uh, let me just, oh, sorry, I'll wrap up. Yeah, so um, I think one, the value of this is that he's like suddenly guiding us towards to look, to have a sight to ideals. And I think that's often missing in political discussion, which is why people just going back and forth, accusing each other of things and ad hominem and what about is, um, like, what are you actually trying to achieve? I think once you ask someone that and try to find it out, maybe we can actually have a better discussion and actually make progress in their discussions. And just... Two other examples of this, this is, is going to be very fast, which is um, another kind of materialist approach is when on international relations, you're just comparing between states. So you're comparing like who's stronger militarily. So you're always trying to one up one another instead of thinking, oh, like, where should we be going ideally? And another example would be um, that example that um, the Athenian brought up about uh, health of the body, like only comparing it to states of sickness and only worrying about it not being sick rather than thinking where we like what is a good state. Um, anyway, so I'll wrap up there. So yeah, I, I just think that's one of the takeaways here so far. No, no I really appreciate that, Darren. And I want to second your invocation of the contrast in measurement uh, in the statesman. That is directly relevant. Uh, you know, Plato does this wonderful thing where he uses different terminology from one dialogue to another. And sometimes, you know, it can be e difficult to know whether he means the same kind of thing. But uh, I'm very confident that the distinction he gives in the statesman, which is this idea that there is merely apparent measures that come from these relative comparisons versus true measures or real measures that sort of cut reality at the joints or, or capture those real classes or forms of values. Um, that is underwriting most of the laws. And so I think that is a good way to sort of figure out how the political theory in the laws is connecting to the political theory in the statesmen or in the Republic where the discussion is in terms of forms. But all of these are how do we measure whether or not us as individuals, us as a family, us as a village, us as a state, us as a global society that we're good or not and he's going to continue to press that question of measurement from different directions um i said earlier that if someone hadn't gotten a chance to speak yet i was going to give them priority in the queue so steve you haven't um this is your first time speaking today so i'd love to call on you next and then uh, phil and james i'll come back to you after steve gets a chance to weigh in here so steve go ahead so the part that you just read uh, reminded me a lot of Big Brother. It's the whole idea of the state uh, controlling the thoughts and uh, you know activities of people throughout their whole lives, all the way up to planning how they get buried. 
and I think it has the whole hierarchy of needs backwards. I think if you look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the base is your physiological needs, then your safety, uh, then love, esteem, and self-actualization. So in order to uh, have these I- the ideals, you know, the hum- you need to have the human activities first. You have to have food, you have to have housing, you have to feel safe. And that, that leads into the whole idea of uh, defensive uh, structure against other people, you know, as far as war, that you have to have a, a safety. Uh, the example that you used about the interstate highway system, that bill was also this called the Interstate Highway and Defense. You know, part of what they were doing was making sure that there was good highways for military vehicles to be able to get across the United States easily. And, you know, the whole idea of, besides what James brought up was very uh, important about remembering, you know, what the foundation of the UN was based on uh, coming out of World War II and the horrific things that happened in uh, Germany and China and across the world and the uh, explosion of the nuclear bombs and, and what it would mean for the future. But, you know, you also have to remember that I remember being in grade school in the 60s and having air raid sirens go off and you had to go into the hallways and kneel and put your heads down to get ready for a nuclear attack. That the um, Soviet Union, the Cold War went on for decades. And, um, you know, all of that was the peace that was available to people on a large scale was due to the fact that there was a overall nuclear or military uh, deterrent. So as far as what a government uh, should be doing is to provide for the physiological and safety of the people and allow them have the laws that uh, you know keep them safe from other people doing them harm. So allows them freedom to find love, you can't you can't instill love in people. I don't believe you know. Besides the communist systems that we've seen throughout the world, or dictatorial systems, you can you know really you know as far as a uh, ideal, you have you can love fascism and communism and the way it was exercised throughout the 20th century, to be similar structures where the the ideals of society was from the top. And then if you have a system where you allow people to find love, esteem, and self-actualization, you can't force them or, you know, guide them. You have to allow them. And then if your society, you know, wants to have programs that increase education, the arts, things of that nature, that's something that as a, a free society, people can get together. But they can only happen when you have that base of security, you know, as we see like in Russia with Ukraine, they would, you know, you see that if the Baltic states were not a part of NATO, Russia would obviously invade them. So you can see how, you know, the uh, defensive measures are very necessary. But my main point was that I think they definitely have the the goals of what a good society should be backwards. You should take care, you know, have the goals of taking care of the human needs and then allowing people to pursue those ideals and higher actualizations afterwards. Thank you.
Oh, thank you for your comments, Steve. That's, that's really um, very helpful and interesting perspective. Um, you know, I, I was sort of thinking to myself something that I think will be a lot of fun to watch for, especially in light of your comments, is how Plato addresses and situates material needs and stability going forward. Um, I think he's going to have some comments in future chapters of the laws that will speak to some of the concerns you're raising. And I'll be curious to know what you think of his proposals later. But your sort of core idea was um, questioning this relationship between the human goods and the divine goods, as he's calling them. And I, I, I suspect what Plato has in mind here is something like um, you can only provide security for a, a citizenry and provide for their basic needs and housing and so forth if those things are being managed by somebody exemplifying the goods of the soul, meaning we're going to have good security if we have wise military commanders and wise civilian leaders. We're going to have uh, a, a, an abolition of food scarcity or housing scarcity if we can build a just economics. But then that requires people to pass laws and policies who display the virtues of justice and moderation. So. I, I hope that's a friendly comment because I intended it to be that um, Plato wants this hierarchy not to mean we don't prioritize material security first, but rather to say that the way you, you provide for material security is realizing that we need that wisdom to make good judgments and pass good laws uh, in the first place. But give that a, a, a something that you that you think about as we move through the dialogue over these next few months to see how he actually envisions us doing that. Uh, Phil, go ahead and jump in here now. Yeah, I, I have a equivocal relationship uh, in regard to this passage at, at two points. I'll mention the simpler one first. I was surprised that justice was third on the list of virtues. Because I would have thought that justice would be the first. And, you know, and prudence, maybe second, and moderation, maybe third. So it seems to me like it's upside down because what good is prudence if you didn't have justice to be prudent about? I mean, like, it's like just be you know, prudent, be careful, you know, like, don't overdo it. You know, like, it seems to me like uh, you have to have a higher virtue. So I was surprised by that. But I could learn. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll leave my... But I was surprised that it seems to me justice would be uh, very high, if not the highest on the virtue. The other so, thing I have a problem with, it, it's deeper, and it has to do with divine laws or divine justice and human justice. Okay, that's fine. The problem is now that there's a relationship in which the praxis has to refer back 
to the theories, okay? And that's okay so far. But what is divine justice? Well, you can look at the gods. Well, certainly not the Greek gods. <laughs> they were a bunch of naughty people, right? So divine certainly does not mean the Greek gods. I've always felt that Plato, when you misplay the hand, divine justice was waiting for Augustine, <laughs> for the mind of God, <laughs> the absolute know-it-all divine of God. So in some sense, you know, you don't you don't really know. You you're always waiting at best for the phone call from God to tell you what it is because we are limited in our knowledge. We we are trapped in the human limitations. We are not uh, eternal. We are temporal. Okay, so there's a problem of time. And the third option is the philosopher is the divine justice. He sees the divine justice. He's not getting a call from God, uh, from Augustine's God, but he somehow is so high that he acts as if he knows. He knows it all. But in fact, once again, when you're temporally bound, you don't know because we know that as time passes, things change to some degree. Even the orbits of the sun, orbits, I mean, not the sun, but the planets, you know, all that stuff changed. So it's not really nature either because nature changed. Because back in those days, they think nature was cyclical. So maybe it wasn't a mistake, but it was a mistake in terms of that. So and the problem when it's time bound, and all of us are time bound because we all die. So all we could do is speculate what it might be like 10,000 years from now, or even 100 years from now, maybe even 10 years from now. So he would have been better if he just sort of say that is not divine justice, but just a very smart speculation that falls back from the divine uh, back into existence. Because we exist in time, justice is eternal, <laughs> according to him. But we live in time of the eternity can never be achieved by us without Augustine's God, then we're stuck unless you really believe the philosopher or somehow transcendental, I mean transcendent, uh, beyond his limitations with, with, with a time bound and also spatially bound. Because <laughs> you live in Crete. How in the hell do you know what the Chinese are doing? So in some sense, in this limitation of the philosophical thing, it almost seems divine justice is probably comes closest to, I guess, the laws and this relationship to legalism. And the problem with legalism is when it's done in the correct way, it achieves a result even in a limited span, but it could be misused. I know the Chinese had a legalistic society as well. And the way they did it, many of the emperors, is they use a stick and carrot. And they write the legalism in a sense to lure you with the carrot and hit you with the stick. Right, <laughs> so right, you would do sure. what they, they want you to do. So legalism sure. could be abused as well. Okay. So I'll leave it at that.
And we will get discussion of sticks and carrots throughout the laws. Um, Plato gives a lot of thoughts to how to motivate human behavior uh, in different ways. And regarding your second point about, uh, you know, the limitations of being able to perceive the good in a way that transcends context or transcends temporal moments or spatial locations, um, I think we're going to need to just wait and see because Plato is going to speak to this question about divine wisdom and how it relates to the laws. Uh, those of you familiar with Plato's writings know that he talks about this in other works, but he will take that issue up in different places in subsequent chapters of the laws. But I do really wanna real quick wanna speak to your first comment, Phil, which was about the ordering of things here. Why is justice third on the list? Um, because I do think there is a pretty clear and straightforward exegesis of Plato here. And it lies on this passage I've highlighted on your screen where he says, the human goods have the divine goods in view, and all of these in turn look towards reason, which is supreme. And as I note in my footnote, what that passage really means is that reason here sort of stands for the divine reason or the divine good which is something that is external from human reality or, or a particular human bit of cognition. And what he has in mind, I think, is that good judgment or prudence, as it's sometimes called, which is first on that list of divine goods, is supposed to be the, the capacity we have to participate in that supreme reason. And what he thinks is, you're not going to achieve moderation or justice or courage if you're not plugged into that supreme reason in the first place. So that's why he has that first on the list. Justice depends on wisdom to be just. And the reason moderation is second is because moderation is about the rest of society saying, yes, we're going to follow wisdom rather than the fear-mongering demagogue or the, uh, the rich plutocrat or the famous music star. No, we're going to follow wisdom. That moderation then makes justice possible. You can't have justice unless wisdom actually rules in a society. So it's not that he thinks justice is not important. It's that he thinks justice depends on moderation and wisdom already being in place before it can be enacted. Um, it, whether we agree with that or not is a different question. I just wanted to be clear. That's what I think Plato is trying to do with these um, hierarchies. Uh, James, go ahead and jump in here, and then I'll move us on to our next reading. Yep, thanks. I'll, I'll just be brief. I just wanted to call attention, I guess, really to the maybe practical elements of what you have here on the screen, which is right around 632A, and the the recognition that people act according to emotions, uh, and emotions are not necessarily uh, governed by reason. But I really like that line where he says, you know, the need to weld it into a rational whole. And I think that's really key. And I think that was the power of starting with book 10, this series, is because it really highlights the primacy of reason to all of this. So we have these emotions, they're reactions to various events, but 
they have to be governed by something. They, they can't just be random. So we bring it all together with reason. Uh, so reason can exist along with, you know, irrationality or not, uh, I don't mean uh, purposeful irrationality, but just, you know, situations where it, it's not reason that's talking. And we'll see, I think in two weeks when we continue to talk about book one, the whole discussion about pleasure and pain. And I think that's leading into this and this whole discussion of courage here is a way of highlighting that emotions need to be taken into account. And I think that's a really practical way of uh, talking about a constitution. Wonderful. Thanks for that, James. Um, yeah, I think seeing those through lines really helps at least bring coherence to, to Plato's text. Um, Steve, just in the interest of time, I'm going to read the next passage, but I'll leave you first in the queue. Uh, if I, if my really quick comment, okay. be disconjected, will not be connected if we wait. So, so the way that Plato's using reason here, I, I was just looking at uh, reason and just wondering if, if the way we're using it is seems from the Latin of ratio or, you know, the root is ratio and, you know, like evaluating between two or more different things, evaluation. But I'm wondering if in the Greek, if, you know, what was the word they were using? Was it logos? And is that, would that be translated more into like uh, logical? So that's something I need to write. Just something I was wondering about if somebody knows about, we could, they could comment on later in the text or in the chat. Uh, Steve, you can at least start to make use of my footnote 11 if you've downloaded the handout. Um, I actually mentioned some of the Greek words that are in use here. So re the first use, uh, the prudential translation there is phronesis, um, which is like, uh, you know, you, you've got street smarts is commonly how Greeks kind of thought of phronesis. Um, then he contrasts that with reason, which is noose, and noose is supposed to be a faculty that allows you to sort of perceive the order of reality itself. You can see scientific laws, you can see the, you know, why Euclid's axioms are correct and so forth. Um, and then when you have a virtuous exercise of noose, that leads to wisdom, which is Sophia. So we've got phronesis, noose, and Sophia. Um, there is another word that's used in the Republic, which uh, is lojo, lojaismo, something like that. I'm not sure how exactly to say it. Um, but even there, I don't know how much, I mean, Plato kind of thought of that word as meaning like the calculating part, you know, the ability to like construct plans and so forth. Um, but there's definitely a sense in which all four of these words are being massaged and stretched for by Plato beyond probably what a typical Greek speaker in his day would think of them as being for. But I just wanted to flag, if you look at that footnote, you can at least get some sense of some of the Greek terminology that um, he's using. Okay, let's go ahead and move to our next passage for the second theme. We have about 20 minutes left here. We'll go to about five minutes past the hour. So I just want to flag people how much time we have left. Um, we may or may not get to our last theme. We'll have to see. 
So this is where we're still continuing with this idea that the purpose of the legislature and society is to aim at promoting virtue, both in the individual citizens and in the collective whole. And here, unsurprisingly, for those of us who know Plato, we're going to now understand that through the lens of education. And I'll go ahead and ask my question before I read this, which is the question I want you to think about is, one, what would this look like if our public school systems today embodied the thoughts we're about to hear? And two, pay attention to how play plays a role in education for Plato. It's not just you know, do your sums, children. There's also going to be play as important and an important pedagogical tool. I'd be curious to hear people's reactions to this proposal. Athenian, I am going to explain how one should describe education. See if you approve of my account. Your explanation then, please. It is this. I insist that a man who intends to be good at a particular occupation must practice it from childhood, both at work and at play. He must be surrounded by the special tools of the trade. For instance, the man who intends to be a good farmer must play at farming, and the man who is to be a good builder must spend his playtime building toy houses. And in each case, the teacher must provide miniature tools that copy the real thing. In particular, in this elementary stage, they must learn the essential elementary skills. For example, the carpenter must learn in his play how to handle a rule and plumb line. And the soldier must learn to ride a horse, either by actually doing it in play or by some similar activity. We should try to use the children's games to channel their pleasures and desires towards the activities in which they will have to engage when they are adults. To sum up, we say that the correct way to bring up and educate a child is to use his playtime to imbue his soul with the greatest possible liking for the occupation in which he will have to be absolutely perfect when he grows up. Now, as I have suggested, consider the argument so far. Do you approve of my account? Of course. But let's not leave our description of education in the air. When we abuse or commend the upbringing of individual people and say that one of us is educated and the other uneducated, we sometimes use this latter term of men who have in fact had a thorough education, one directed towards petty trade or the merchant shipping business or something like that. But I take it that for the purpose of the present discussion, we are not going to treat this sort of thing as education. What we have in mind is education from childhood in virtue, a training which produces a keen desire to become a perfect citizen who knows how to rule and be ruled as justice demands. I suppose we should want to mark off this sort of training from others and reserve the title education for it alone. A training directed to acquiring money or a robust physique or even some intellectual facility not guided by reason and justice, we should want to call coarse and illiberal and say that it had no claim whatever to be called education. Still, let's not quibble over a name. Let's stick to the proposition we agreed on just now. As a rule, men with a correct education become good, and nowhere in the world 
should education be despised. For when combined with great virtue, it is an asset of incalculable value. If it ever becomes corrupt, but can be put right again, this is a lifelong task, which everyone should undertake to the limit of his strength. So what do we think of this picture of, now we're not just saying that the legislator aims at virtue in a society, but we say that the education system, the public education system is now gonna aim at doing more than just teaching kids their sums and how to spell, but we're also going to prioritize virtue in the public education system. What would that look like? And would that be desirable or not? What do people think of the proposal thus far? And James, go ahead. It's a really interesting proposal and the idea of using playtime to demonstrate virtuous principles, I guess, or instill virtuous principles. I really like the line, uh, so that a person knows how to rule and be ruled as justice demands. And I think that's the that's a key thing to think about in this educational proposal, in that, you know, as we look around the world today, I think a lot of people don't like being governed, don't know how to govern, aren't governable. And that leads to great disharmony. And we're seeing this all around the world. So to understand the give and take in governing, to be able to put yourself in both positions, governed and governor, I think gives one a really whole new understanding of it. And so I really like that idea of uh, instilling that that understanding of virtue and governance, I guess, and, and that the virtue and harmony of people. So I, I really thought that was powerful, that line about uh, knowing how to rule and be ruled as justice demands. Yeah, thanks, James. You know, I was thinking as I was reading this passage, for those of you in Canada, you may not have, you, you may have mercifully uh, not had to hear about this particular news item, but recently in the United States, we had a Senate hearing. It was supposed to be a, a hearing on labor where uh, one of the head of a, uh, of a major labor union in the United States had come before the Senate panel to sort of testify and answer questions. And one of the senators opened his questioning time by challenging the head of the union to a physical brawl on the Senate floor. And you can find this on YouTube. This really happened. And I, it was one of those things where I looked at what was happening and I was thinking, you know, these are people who were not trained how to be moderate, just, and wise citizens together. And what would, you know, what would a parliament hearing or debate look like if the members of parliament had been trained in virtue from a young age? Um, I, you know, that's the kind of uh, situation that really stands out to me. And I, I think we should, um, you know, wonder about. Uh, Phil. Yeah, I, I like this section because it actually emphasizes a kind of a liberal education in a way. In other words, the most important thing you could teach people, particularly young people, 
is how to be a human being, a virtuous human being, which means two things, I suppose. I mean, like I said, I'm not quite agreeing yet with what divine <laughs> justice is, uh, but to teach them how to behave not only divinely, but having sort of a relationship with otherness, with other human beings. I remember I grew up in, well, I grew up a very part-time in China and had some understanding of classical Chinese education, although this is not what is practiced now in China. It is the three parts. You learn man's relationship to things. And I, I want to make a very important is the relation. Uh, we call that science, but science teach objectivity. It teaches relationship. Uh, man's relationship to others, which we call social science, but how the relationship between you and this thing and this other thing is other human beings in that case. And man's relationship to spirit, which is about the divine part. And I think once you have that, then you become a human being and you understand a good social structure in a way. And then only then should you go into a kind of a craft, a profession. Because if you go into a profession too early, you don't know how to harmonize with a social structure because it's driven by a profession, which is probably the underlying structure is really economics. And I could see how the economics could propel you into this material existence, which is supported by, by not only material existence, but, but the mighty dollar. <laughs> so I, I could see how we kind of got that upside down because we reduced, even back in the old days, you know, like the liberal education is actually, you know, what is that general education, you know, and then you go into specifically in the law or, you know, dentistry or whatever. So I, I think we've gone the wrong way. And that's why we have, in many ways, dehumanized a society. Because we not only do not care for the whole, but we do not care enough for the other in the structure. And uh, I'm not sure if we even care about things. Because <laughs> if we care about things, we might have not developed the atomic bomb. We have things. Even on a more mundane example, Phil, uh, we might not be swapping out our smartphones every six months. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you. That's that, that's a, that, that, those are wonderful comments. I really appreciate you connecting it to the, a more classical Chinese education. I do think Plato's views have a lot of connections to themes that we find in, in other traditions like the Confucian tradition, Lao Tzu. Um, and so forth. So I, I think anytime people find those connections, that's really great. Uh, Roger. Thank you. I, I have a couple of points. First one, summarily, summarily, I agree with Phil that children should not be channeled into different uh, career, you know, targets. I think, I mean, for obvious reasons, I do not need to belabor that it's eventually counterproductive. Now, as to the more interesting question that Michael, you raised, whether in the education system, we should 
educate our children or instill in them the notion of virtue as opposed, I mean, you did not really underrate or undermine the, the need for the traditional uh, subjects such as math, uh, physics, and so on. I don't think it is necessary to try to teach them what virtue is is all about and what good human uh, or social behavior should be. I mean, obviously, you touch on that every now and then. But the main purpose of education is to get the children to acquire knowledge. And by fending off ignorance and piling up knowledge in your head, you become increasingly a good or a better human being. Knowledge is extremely powerful. Like you think of various subjects. We're not going to talk about math and physics. We can talk about history. We can talk about geography. We can talk about philosophy, for instance. Philosophy, which is still being taught in France. I know the French system well. Uh, in grade 13. I mean, here it, it's unheard of until you take an elective in first year uh, university as philosophy or psychology. Otherwise, you'd never be exposed. And even the other subjects, traditional like geography, history, you look at Ontario graduates from high school, they have no idea. They can't recall anything about history or geography. They recall a little bit of the math and they forget it. So I think our education system is very lacking. And if they can teach the students how to be disciplined by acquiring knowledge, by putting them under the stress of learning, this is how they become better human beings, in my opinion. They Look at us. I mean, do you suspect that any of, you know, us attending those meetup groups, and let's take philosophy, are going to misbehave? Like, statistically speaking, just take, I doubt that any one of us is ill-intentioned or greedy or money-driven. It's I can't fathom that. Why? Because we're intellectually busy. So we have other objectives. We have other ways of fulfilling our needs. We don't need the materialist. I mean, we can think of Diogenes, of course, talking to Alexander. I mean, that's typical, but that's extreme. But you talk of us, about us, and I don't think you're going to find bad elements in those groups because <laughs> we have our priority where it should be. And I think if you teach our children to have their priorities where they should be, not on the materialistic aspect, not driven by consum consumerism like their parents, we just talked about smartphone, it's, it's a catastrophe. It's disastrous where we're heading. No right. one is telling us, is teaching our children to stop consuming. And right. that's it. I, I think that, sorry, that's the answer to your question from my perspective. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. One, I should just say I'm quite envious of the French primary education system. I 
live in the United States, which I suspect is even worse off than the situation in Canada. So I um, very much appreciated you reminding us of how things are done differently elsewhere. But I, I want to just quickly say, and then I'll turn it over to Darren, that I'm not entirely sure you were disagreeing with Plato. Um, at one point, let me look at my notes, you said, we don't need to teach virtue because the goal of education is to teach knowledge. Now, unless I'm misremembering this, I, I believe in the Mino, Plato actually says virtue is knowledge. Meaning when you were saying, for example, we need to teach our children what the right priorities are, I think, I mean, we'll see as we go through the laws, but I suspect Plato's just going to say, yeah, that is teaching virtue <laughs> and, and teaching knowledge. Like you said, Plato really does believe that virtue comes from knowing the good, knowing the just, knowing, um, as he says, for courageous people, courageous people are those who know what to fear and what not to fear. So I think I, I just open that up as a potential real harmony um, between you on what it might mean to teach virtue. Um, we're, we're pretty much out of time. So Darren, can you make a quick like two minute comments and then we'll wrap up? Uh, sure. Yeah, it, it wasn't going to be long. I, at least I hope not. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to predict, but yeah, I'll try to make this short. So yeah, this is just, I'm, I mean, I don't have that much to say. Just regarding um this passage you read, I think the, use of play in its connection with virtue is kind of interesting because there, there's a lot of focus here on getting the child to like their tasks and so you do that through play so it's a kind of it's a kind of emotional education as well and this gets tied wrapped up with virtue um the count here is extremely sketchy um i suspect there's gonna i think I'm pretty sure there's a whole book coming up on education, uh, including this kind of emotional education. So I'm just going to, you know, sort of withhold my thoughts because it, it's very sketchy here. Like one one aspect, one way in which it's sketchy is that it seems like the kinds of emotional education that comes through play and that generates a kind of liking for these activities seems very tied to like certain tasks and occupations they're maybe preordained for. That's what it sounds like here. But again, I suspect it's not the full story. So we'll see maybe in, in later books what, what it's going to say. It's liberal in a sense, um, but also illiberal in a way. Uh, so but I guess we'll find out more. That's a very nice uh, way to put it, actually. That Yeah, there, there are going to be similarities because Plato has influenced modern societies. But yeah, there's going to be contrast too. Yeah. And I think that might be... And maybe just one more thing is that my understanding is that Plato, in his dialogues, he eventually came to a more psychological view of the human being. So initially, he took the Socratic view where virtue is just knowledge. Um, that was, you know, very much Socrates view. But I think my understanding is that Plato gradually introduces more psychological elements so that, you know, virtue is knowledge, but it's also, you know, training your emotions and feelings, which could be recalcitrant to just like knowledge or what you want to do. Yeah. And in fact, I think the section on drunkenness that's coming up, uh, we're going to discuss next week is going to, yeah. is, is a lot about this. So yeah, this, this aspect of, um, yeah, maybe, maybe there's this aspect of virtue coming in too. And, and I guess the, the introduction of play here is, is good because it's like bewitching the, <laughs> the child into virtue rather than like forcing it you know, on right. them, it's like quietly sort of like tempting right. them into doing into the good.
I think that's right. Yeah, no, well said. Um, I won't read our, our last page other than I want to just read the last little end here because it's a nice fitting conclusion. Um, before I do, I'll, I'll just say kind of building on Darren's comments that a lot of the questions that have been asked today, which are excellent, are things that we should look for in future chapters. Uh, it, the Laws is a very big book. A lot of territory is covered. And a lot of the questions that we've had today are questions that the interlocutors are going to end up raising themselves. So I hope you keep track of those and see what you think in future chapters. I'll end with this, uh, just a, a nice little nod to Plato's sense of the importance of being practical and not just idealistic. Um, this comes at 636b. The Athenian says, well, my friends, I should think that the real difficulty is to make political systems reflect in practice the trouble-free perfection of theory. And he gives this nice example of human health. And I put right next to it a little Yogi Berra quote where Yogi Berra says, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. So we'll end with that and I'll turn it over to our host, uh, James, to wrap us up. Well, thanks, Michael, and thank you for everybody for attending. This has been a great discussion, as always, and uh, I really appreciate your help with us, Michael. And it's it's nice to be on the other side of the mic and and to get a bit of a different perspective on how this goes. So uh, I appreciate that opportunity as well. So I wanted to just say, just before we end the discussion today, uh, those who want to stay online for a casual half-hour unrecorded discussion in Plato's Cafe, you're welcome to do that but we will reconvene in two weeks. We will continue with book one. There are some parts we didn't get to today, including that last section, but also I think in particular, uh, 632E to 643A, uh, interesting part that looks at courage and pleasures and pains and this whole theme of drunkenness, which will continue into book two, which is a really interesting idea. So looking forward to covering that next time and we can pick up on some of these ideas uh, as well that we started discussing today. So, so thank you everybody for attending. I'll end the recording now and uh, those who wish to stay online, please do. And we will reconvene in two weeks.